2: Um, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkharan, and I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. John Nemec, who is Associate Professor uh, in the Department of Religious Studies at UVA, the University of Virginia. Um, we will be speaking with him about a brand new OUP publication that's part of the AAR Religion and Translation series, of which John is an editor. We'll be speaking about his second volume in this a series of his work uh, uh, called The Ubiquitous Shiva, Somananda's uh, Shivadrishti and his Philosophical Interlocutors, Volume 2. John, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
2: So how did you fall down this rabbit hole of studying Somananda? What happened there?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I mean, uh, to I came into Indian studies um by accident. I took a course in college at the University of Rochester, uh, somewhat inaptly titled "Asian Search for Self," uh, because I thought it was going to be about East Asia, about China, and it ended up being about South Asia and Hinduism and Buddhism, taught by Douglas Brooks, uh, and I just fell in love with the topic, so I continued on. You know, um studying there, and then I went to Nepal for study abroad. I decided I wanted to work on these things, I thought, uh, and I figured, you know, but I really should see the place and the people who were, you know, Hindu and Buddhist. I didn't know many Hindus or Buddhists in, in my college days. And uh, I went to Nepal thinking I was gonna work on Buddhism, and I ended up becoming fascinated with uh, Bhairav. they call him, the god Bhairava, Uh, in the Kathmandu Valley and around it and uh, really just became uh, interested in in Hinduism and the esoteric brand Tantric Hinduism. So that was sort of just stumbling along and then studied Sanskrit in graduate school and so on uh, because obviously it was necessary. And honestly, I knew this text existed. Somananda is the founding author of this philosophical school called the Pratyabhigya, the recognition school. Um, The most famous uh, representatives of which are Utpaladeva, and then Abhinavagupta. But here we have the great grand guru of Abhinavagupta with this famous text published in the Kashmir series of texts and studies in 1934, and really hardly dealt with. And I heard it was hard. And that seemed like a good idea to try and do something difficult. And it seemed like an obvious choice to try to see what the first text in this very, very influential philosophical line had in it. And so I picked in that way. Honestly, I wanted to know what was there and I wasn't sure. And it was an adventure. And then I spent 15 years working on it.
2: Yes. And why don't you tell the listeners what it is that you ended up producing? Because more than just a translation, there was tons of work involved in actually establishing the text. Yes. Tell us a bit about the process.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Okay. sure. Um, So it's at, at its base, the project is is text critical. And so what I'm trying to do is understand as best as we possibly can with as much of the evidence that we could gather what Soma Ananda might have thought and written. And, you know, there's an Editio Princeps, there's an original published edition of the text, but it's only based on two handwritten manuscripts. And as I'm sure your listeners know, uh, much of the Indian tradition is passed orally, but also then in manuscript form. And then we get texts in published form uh, with written published form, but there are a lot of variants. Um, in what's written in a, a verse, a passage of text, a passage of commentary, and to understand what might have been originally intended, and that's a little dangerous to get at original intent, the author's intent, um, because uh, it's speculative. But to try and get there, we can we can know things for sure, uh, and some things we're not totally sure that we know, but we can put all the evidence out and let people. Make their own minds up. So what I did was to gather from around India mostly, also a couple of libraries in in Europe, in the West, Uh, I gathered as many examples, copies of this text as I could find. And they're written in various Indian scripts, including principally Sharada, which is the uh, uh, particularly Kashmiri script, very beautiful, um, but also South Indian scripts. Um, and devanagari Agri. And I basically went through and compared every line of these uh, uh, manuscripts, uh, about a dozen of them, and looked line by line and looked through it. And in a few places, I posit that all the materials we have can't hold what was originally there. There must have been a mistake. And so one can imagine, you know, the I skipped, there are two cuz in a row, and the I skipped one of them, this kind of thing. And there are maybe eight or 15 places, something like that, where I posit readings for which we have no evidence, but I think are absolutely necessary. And the last thing I want to say about this is I give, I record in the edition, the critical edition, all of the readings of all of the manuscripts positively. So there's no question at all as to what all the manuscripts read. So that's a way of saying there's a humility in that, right? Where you say, I think this is what was said. I think this is what we have to understand here. However, I'm going to furnish all of the data so that if someone wants to come to a different conclusion, they can.
2: I believe it was in... uh, uh a podcast interview with uh, Peter Bishop and Yuko Yokochi on the Skanda Purana Project, where uh, one way to think of a critical edition is our hypothesis, right? It's, it's, this is what we hypothesize as a, a cogent text. And so there is that. It's clear having done a number of interviews with folks who have oh, far more patience than I do, that's for sure who do critical editions (laughs) that, um, that there is this, uh, there is this, this, this toiling to arrive at a critical edition that is tacitly accepted because added to it are the variants and the possibilities. And so I find that a really intriguing process.
1: Yeah. I don't know why I love it, but I do. And I, Guess Some,
2: somebody has to, God bless you, John.
1: Somebody has to do it, but it really is really a privilege to look at this piece of paper, you know, or palm leaf, whatever it is. It's probably several hundred years old very often, or at least a hundred years old in almost every case, and see what somebody else thought was important to write down. I mean, nothing, everything was hand copied. Uh, so I find it, you know, a privilege and very enjoyable. I'm also really indebted to Madhusudan Kol Shastri, the person who made the nineteen thirty-four publication, because he made the same kinds of choices I'm making. He didn't record explicitly his corrections or emendations, but now I have had access to certainly the main principal manuscript he read from. And you can see all the places where he cleared things up, uh, used his judgment, and, you know, we're deeply indebted to him. So in my edition, I record everything he gives us uh, as well. And then the last thing I wanted to say is this idea of, you know, patantra, Tantra, you know, another another reading and having a variant, this is in the tradition itself too. So it's not, sometimes people think it's like a modern Western thing and an imposition, but the reality is this goes into, you know, the indigenous tradition in India of transmission of texts.
2: Um, That's a great segue for my next question. Speaking of the indigenous tradition in India, um, uh, to our knowledge, is there a living tradition uh, where this text is used?
1: Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this because you had noted that, you know, it would be worth thinking about for whom this book might be written. And indeed, you know, it's surprising to me. I wrote an article um, a number of years ago that i thought was purely historical of a tradition long gone um uh, it was on the trudadhamara Tantra uh, and uh out of the blue uh, a month or two ago somebody wrote and said that they're still doing the pujas the rituals um of that of that tradition and that they they keep my article because it brings to light you know an unpublished text that has only exists in I think we only have two manuscripts left of it, manuscript copies of it left of it that I know of or that maybe anyone knows of in the world. And that was, you know, really striking to me, right? Uh, we, we all famously know that India never forgets. And so the tradition is, is deep and uh, um, perdures. This tradition of this esoteric Shaiva non-dual philosophy I think has had a, a wide reach historically and down to the present day. It's been an inspiration for a number of um, modern yogic guru traditions. Um, uh, of course, there's the famous Swami Lakshman Jew, who ha, has, of course, passed away some decades ago, but is a was a living representative of this tradition. Um, and that remains. So I do think that there are practitioners who are interested in this material, not just in an academic way.
2: I think it's fascinating, the cross-pollination in in this particular case of that article you wrote, that um, in you studying the text and and producing scholarship on it, you ended up giving back to the community of practitioners who are then... I mean, where's the line, right? It's it's fascinating, the exchange between the two. Um, um, This Uh, publication of yours is the second volume. Uh, Tell us about that. Pan out a bit and tell us about the larger project.
1: Well, so it's the Shiva Drishti, or Vision of Shiva, that's a loose translation, um, is uh, in seven Achnikas, or daily lessons. um, And in the published edition is 220 pages long. And my dissertation dealt with the first part of it. This book deals with I would say the middle part of it, but there still remain of those 220 pages of the published edition. I think there's still about 50 pages to go. So I do anticipate finishing the job um, in a third volume down the road. This is, as I said earlier, this is the first text in this famous or recognition school of philosophy. Uh, It's Somananda is the immediate teacher of Utpaladeva, who's the grand guru of Abhinavagupta. And it's a very uh, famously a, a work that mixes registers. The Shivadrishti speaks to a in a number of voices in a number of ways, um, including speaking in a kind of theological voice and also speaking in a much more strictly philosophical voice, a voice of logic and argument. Um, so, this part two. Marks a transition in the text. It it, it deals with the fourth, achmika or the fourth chapter and its commentary. The commentator is uttapaladeva, um, uh, and it it marks a transition from what came before, which looked a lot more in tantric theology and the language of tantric theology. Here we're really dealing with philosophical schools, mainstream non tantric philosophical schools in Buddhism and Hindu tradition. And uh, the second thing that distinguishes this volume is uh, the commentator tells us that, whereas in the first part of the book, my volume one, the goal was to um, deal with opposing schools, here the uh, endeavor is to make a positive claim, to positively argue for, not to defend the tradition, but to logically prove, make arguments for, the the argument of the book which is that everything exists as
2: shiva wonderful we will definitely i will definitely link your first book volume one of this project in the podcast notes in case folks are interested um right. in this in in following this trilogy and the, the the finale is coming up at some point we'll 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 have you back on the podcast when that one's out um so who are there's a question that's been niggling in the back of my brain and I'm not sure how to ask it because I don't want to ask a leading question um is it surprising that um that um that no one studied this text scarcely anyone Uh, given the significance of this tradition given the significance of Somananda is is it is it surprising that this hasn't has has received such little scholarly attention
1: I mean yes and no right uh I on the one hand, it's a little bit the analogy I've used when applying for a grant and that kind of thing is, you know, in, in, in Greece, we have this tradition, you know, from Socrates to Plato to Aristotle. And Plato and Aristotle have received a lot of coverage, but Socrates, we don't have original texts, only representation in, in Plato and so on. Um, whereas here we have the, the analog to Socrates, we have Somananda and it's lying there waiting for us. So on the one hand, it's absolutely unusual that it wasn't sort of particularly given, you know, European, Western interest in origins in religion, and that's problematic in its own ways, but it's it's surprising in a way that this hasn't been taken up. But there are two reasons to understand why. The first one is that the tradition itself somewhat leaves it to the side in favor of Deva's articulation of the tradition and Abhinavagupta's commentary on Deva, And we see this in, you know, the Sarvadasana Sangraha, this uh, collection of, um, this doxographic work collection of uh, uh, summaries and critiques, crit- critical summaries of other schools. The Pratibhigya that they give, it's really leaning into and and not Sumananda. So we have this kind of supersession of the Shiva Drishti within the tradition itself to some degree. Um, and then this is probably related to the second reason that it hasn't been studied, which is that it's, it really is difficult work. Um, and one of the things that makes it difficult is that the commentary becomes lost after the middle of the fourth chapter. And so uh, it's been argued and suggested and, um, uh, that one can't really read the Shivadrishti without an extant commentary. And Abhinavagupta wrote a commentary on the text, uh, which is completely lost excepting for a few stray quotations. And Utpaladeva wrote a complete commentary on the text, and it's lost roughly halfway through the book. So there are real difficulties of interpretation. And it can feel like decipherment rather than translation when working through the text. So I think there are natural reasons uh, to, to move to other things. Um, and then there are practical reasons as well. It's just difficult work.
2: So who were Soma Davis' interlocutors?
1: Well, so uh in this second volume is dealing with philosophical schools that were of purchase outside of any esoteric tradition. So these are what we could call like a mainstream philosophical school. He's deeply interested in the, the Buddhist epistemology in Buddhist logic, um, and in the person of Dharmakirti in particular. Um, and in a way that my book argues, anticipates what Utpaladeva does there, which is really important because Utpaladeva is really a great philosopher, um, but maybe owes a little bit more to his teacher than we had known prior to what I'm I'm trying to argue here. Um, He also deals with the Mimamsakas, the the Vedic uh, hermeneutical school that has a philosophical uh, side to it, Um, the Sankhya school uh, of Sankhya and yoga, is very very well represented, and then the what I call the realist Nayaikas and Vaisheshikas Nyaya and Vaisheshika. Um, these are the interlocutors that, that I I found in in these passages.
2: And so through your work, um, what is he saying? What is Soemananda saying?
1: Well, I think he makes his case clearly. The commentator says he's going to make a positive case for his position and the first verses of the text are laying out of the fourth chapter what's in this book are laid out and I suddenly realized that what he had laid out is a logical argument, a syllogism of, of five parts according to the classic Naya model and the argument he's trying to make in that syllogism he, no one tells us not commentator not somananda that what is laid out in the beginning is a syllogistic argument. But I think it's there, and I make the case for it in the notes to the translation. And the, the syllogism is trying to prove that everything is comprised of, everything is Shiva. So it's an argument for non-duality. It's an argument for all of existence and all of being, our very essences or Atmans ourselves, being uh, comprised of Shiva himself. And that's his argument.
0: slash nbn50 to get
2: 50% off. Was there anything that particularly surprised you through this work about what you discovered?
1: Definitely. Uh, the largest surprise, and it, it'll probably sound small to people who haven't spent all their time working on Pratibidia philosophy uh, and have other Interests in our normal human beings, but uh, uh, for me, what was very surprising is the degree to which he dealt with Dharmakirti, the the Buddhist epistemologist. Um, and it's surprising because of his I mentioned this idea of mixed registers. It's surprising because the beginning of the chapter, chapter four in this volume two that I I've just published, um, sounds a lot like Shiva theology. He's talking about Shiva. He's talking about shakti or things that are shakta empowered and it sounds like a Purana, right it sounds like a mythology almost in its vocabulary it sounds like shiva and shakti and so on but what he's really doing in those passages is arguing with dharmakirti about the nature of existent things in the world and this was fascinating to me the degree to which he engaged dharmakirti and i think it's been underappreciated And it's important because this school of philosophy, Pratapigya, has been heavily influenced by Dharmakirti. Um, Dharmakirti and thought shaped it. The Buddhists here really shaped and influenced the Hindu tradition. And we know that from the work of several scholars who've who've done a lot on on Utpaladeva and then also Abhinavagupta. So to find it here was a surprise to me in the degree that it's there.
2: Fascinating. Could you say a quick word about this seeming Puranic dimension, this narrative exchange? Uh, could you say a little bit about that? What surprised you about that?
1: Well, uh, uh, I mean, other than you know reading particular passages, I'm not sure I have much more to say about it. Uh, it's just that his vocabulary sounds like Shaiva theology. He's talking about Shiva. He's talking about uh Shiva being identical to the phenomena in the universe, that's fine. Um, And then he's talking about things that are empowered or things that have power or things that are power. Um, Shakti, they're shakta, he says. Um, And uh, uh, the two are identified. We have these scriptural passages in Shaivism that talk about Shiva never being separated from his Shakti, Shakti never being divorced from Shiva. And it sounds like that's what he's doing once again. So it looks a little bit like an anodin passage, you know, just again talking about Shiva and Shakti. Um, uh, nothing, uh, let's say anodin when we think about philosophy, right? But what he's really saying is that he disagrees with the Buddhists who make the claim that there are different types of phenomena in the world, some that are empowered to have an effect. Uh, and others that don't have that capacity. And is saying, no, everything has a capacity in some way, even if the capacity is only to make itself known in consciousness. And so what he's doing is arguing a small, in a way, minute, but also fundamental philosophical point to try to narrow things down to one thing so that everything can be of a single quality. Everything can be of a single nature. And that nature is a dynamic Shiva's consciousness. But it does it at the beginning of this chapter with terminology that really sounds non-philosophical.
2: Yeah, one of the ideas I play with in my own research and teaching is the extent to which um, theology and philosophy are are mythologized or, or mythology encodes, consciously encodes theology and philosophy for the sake of accessibility, or um, preservation of certain values, or um, 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 mass consumption, so that that, 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 that really intrigues me. Um, who who's this book for? Like, who who would you envision really benefiting from, or 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 needing, or wanting to get this book?
1: I mean, here I'm very very modest. I you know at some level. Would say that
2: it's not for the whole world.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not for the whole world. Probably for very few. But uh, uh, I mean, obviously, people are interested in historical questions around Shaivism, the history of Hinduism. I think that obviously that's the first audience. So that's that's the narrowest gauge of you know scholars and graduate students, people who have that kind of interest. But you know, we talked about this earlier, and I'm glad you asked this because I wanted to come back to it. Um. I can imagine a wider audience of people who maybe even have a personal stake uh, in religion, and you know, I wanted to say that I've always tried in my work um, to to be uh, responsible historically, to uh, be objective in the way that I approach my work. But I've always thought and thought about my work maybe being available to people who have other interests than in mine. You know, I'm. I'm not a Shaiva, I'm, I, I'm not Hindu, um, and I remember all the time that the tradition isn't mine, but I try to write in a way that could be useful to people who practice, people who are interested in Shiva in a personal way. And so I tried to make my translations legible with the footnotes, of which there are probably too many, but there are many, Having two audiences in mind, scholars who want to chase down parallel passages and other texts and that kind of thing, quotations, whatever, but also just general explanations that I think the argument is doing this or the other thing Um, for people who maybe don't read Sanskrit, but want to get at the ideas that are available here. So So I have a double audience in mind, maybe it reaches a wider audience and I, I hope it does, but obviously that's not up to me.
2: Well, the, it's up to the grace of Shiva. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> uh, there,
2: those interested in all things Shaiva might well be interested in the book because the translation is written in an accessible manner. The book is structured such that there are there um, is a significant introduction to orient you, um, And then I think the translation comes next. And then uh, there is the actual Sanskrit text and transliteration with all the the various, the variants and the notes. And so whether you uh, are into manuscriptology or philology, or you want to uh, understand uh, the history of this tradition, um, I imagine it'll serve your interests, but also, as I say, if you have an interest in all things Shaiva, much like your cat does, apparently.
1: Yeah, sorry
2: about my cat. Why are you apologizing? (laughs) Um. This this uh, this book might hold appeal. Could you say a word about yeah, the I, series?
1: I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I do imagine it being used in different ways by different people, and so some people may go to the back and look at emendations and corrections and conjectures in the ma- in the manuscript, uh, in the in the edition. Working with the manuscripts, I, I'm sure other people ignore it altogether, and I, I hope that it captures people with all those kinds of interests.
2: Excellent. Could you tell us a bit more about the AAR, that's American Academy of Religion um, um, Text and Translation Series that this book is a part of through um, OUP? Um, uh, Also, you're the editor of that series currently. So tell us a bit about that.
1: Yes. Um, uh, So there's something called, it used to be called the texts and Traditions series, I think, and now the title of the book series is Religion in Translation. Um, and the, the series has been entitled Religion in Translation for about 15 or 18 years now, um, maybe even slightly longer than that. Uh, the, the first volume came out in Religion in Translation under the edi- editorship of Anne Monius. And due to, that, the, uh, due to that historical fact, the second volume came out in this series as well. I have to say it's a little unusual to be the editor of the series in which one publishes one's own book. Um, and I was quite wary about it, but Cynthia Reed, the um, editor for Religion at Oxford University Press New York, obviously did all of the peer review and the editorial work. Um, Uh, I didn't do it for myself. But Religion and Translation is a series of the American Academy of Religion and Oxford University Press. Uh, It it is uh, published by OUP New York and sponsored by the American Academy of Religion. So your your listeners will know I'm sure that the American Academy of Religion is this uh, largest scholarly academy for the academic study of religion in North America, but also with an international membership. And they sponsor seven or eight book series um, uh, that focus in different areas of concern. This one is interested in works of translation. So it can be like the religion and translation can include things like my book that are translations. You have a, a target language is always English. We always translate into English, but from any tradition, any source language, any historical period, uh, dealing with any issue in religion, widely conceived, uh, is eligible for inclusion in religion and translation. So, translations of important works um, that deal with religion are representative of religious phenomena or points of view. Uh, It also, religion and translation, takes up works that aren't Like mine. They're not translations per se. They're monographs, scholarly monographs, but they use translation as a method um, or engage significantly in the work of translation in that wider sense of it, of taking something conceptually from one tradition or historical moment into uh, another one. Um, So there can be that kind of larger sense of translation. Dealing with texts, it can also be living tradition. It does not have to translate texts, you can translate anthropologically um, uh, into uh, uh, English language for for an English-speaking audience.
2: So now that this um, 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 second installment of the series is out, I imagine you're working on the third installment of this translation project. But let me not assume, and let me just ask, what are you working on next?
1: Right. So actually, I'm, I've taken a little break from Somarananda. Um, where I am in the text, uh, two thirds or a little bit more through the whole thing, I'm now in the area where there's no commentary left. And so the work is slow. And unfortunately, yeah, one of the one of the problems we have with no commentary being left is we also have very, very few manuscripts of the text after after the commentary disappears, because the majority of the manuscripts we have of the text. Are manuscripts that included the commentary. So I go from twelve to two, and so we have fewer sources for clues as to what might have been said. So I, I am coming back to it soon, but in the meantime, it's been a long time coming into print. In the meantime, I've been working on a book that uh, I finished that deals with the narrative literatures uh, uh, and looks at the relationship of brahmins and kings, um, the representatives of Religious authority and political authority in the narrative literatures. So that I hope to send out to a publisher very, very soon. Um, and then I've been commissioned to work on a book on the state of, it's called uh, Shiva Tantra, the State of the Field. And this is for the uh, Ludo and Roseanne Rocher Foundation, have set up a Rocher Indology series. And within that series, they've set up a subseries series uh, that um, uh, uh, examines scholarly subfields and gives a critical review and prospects for those subfields. So yoga is an example of a subfield um, and Shaiva Tantrism is another. So my ambition there is to sort of sum up what's happened in the study of Shaiva traditions, Tantric traditions over the last, let's say, four uh, 40 years, that's really when there's been a great interest in this, and identify lacunae trends, possibilities, and so on, and also hopefully make that scholarship available to non in a in an easier way. So that's what I'm working on right now, um, and that should take a year or two, and then I'll come back to this.
2: Uh, that sounds fascinating, actually part of what's sort of done on the podcast maybe inadvertently is the tracking of trends right um seeing publications coming out noticing oh wow we've done 10 yoga books in the last year let's do a let's do an event at the ochs along those lines i mean uh there is no rhyme or reason to whom I interview. As long as it's a reputable, reputable press and it's on my radar, then I'm happy to in, invite someone or, or someone will contact me type thing. But I really like the idea of um, having a more systematic and and, and critical look at subfields. Because it, it it really gives you the bird's eye view of, of what's happening. right? So that's really cool. Perhaps we can talk about that on the podcast at some point yeah. as well.
1: I mean, I'd imagine you have a view of the field that's, you know, you're very lucky to have a view of the field, wide view of the field that's probably very, very informed. I should probably go listen to more of your podcasts than I have.
2: Um, you, <laughs> since you've taken a little time out with Soma maybe you'll have, maybe you'll have the time, we'll see. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on today about your book?
1: Um, no, you know, I mean, I thank you for your questions. I think uh, it gives a good sense of what it is and what it's trying to do. And I really appreciate it.
2: Mission accomplished. You're welcome. Thanks so so <laughs> thank you for appearing on the podcast today. So for those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. John Nemec, who is associate professor at UVA, the University of Virginia. We've been speaking with him about his um, 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 second installment of this um Important translation project uh, called the Ubiquitous Shiva Somananda's Shiva Drishti and his philosophical interlocutors, Volume Two. It's a brand new OUP publication that's part of a series sponsored by the American Academy of Religion, uh, pertaining to translating texts. All of the links, uh, the relevant links, will be in the podcast notes. Um, until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening, and keep contemplating uh the mystery of shiva
0: with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom